Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I am joined by the one and only Questlove. Questlove joined us on the podcast earlier this year around his directorial debut, Summer of Soul. Part concert film, part historical record, the documentary is set across six weeks in the summer of 1969, where just 100 miles south of Woodstock, the Harlem Cultural Festival was filmed in Mount Morris Park. The festival featured performances from Stevie Wonder, Nina Simone, B.B. King, The Fifth Dimension, Gladys Knight, and The Pips. But for decades, the footage from this landmark event was buried destined to never see the light of day. What the footage needed was not just a director, but a student of music. And that is where Questlove comes in. Here's a clip from his directorial debut, Summer of Soul. Nobody ever heard of the Harlem Culture Festival. Nobody would believe it happened. Six weekends of major artists. The Panthers were the security and kids were sitting up on the trees. I was nervous. I didn't expect a crowd like that. Something very important was happening. It wasn't just about the music. 1969 was a change of era in the black community. The styles were changing. Music was changing. And revolution was coming together. That concert took my life from black and white into color. We wanted progress. We are black people and we should be proud of this. We were coming together to say this was our world and how beautiful it was. We're going to try to sing a song together. Don't wait for your neighbor because your neighbor might be waiting for you. We believed in what we felt in here. So when we went up, let's go. Let's go do it. That was from Summer of Soul. If you haven't seen the film yet, it's currently available to stream on Hulu. Now, I wanted to replay this episode because 
Summer of Soul is currently nominated for Best Documentary Feature at the Oscars. I'm hoping that by the time you're listening to this, Questlove is either about to win or has already given his accepted speech. The award pundits and prognosticators claim the film is poised to win the Oscar. If for some reason it doesn't, please feel free to blame me. But beyond celebrating Summer of Soul, I wanted to represent this episode because, to be honest, it's quickly become a favorite of mine. Without spoiling it, Questlove and I talk about the impossibility of this debut, the miracle of it all. We also talk performing in a traveling band with his parents, creating the legendary hip-hop group, The Roots, the enduring influence of his manager, the late Richard Nichols, and how the words of Nina Simone have redefined what he believes to be his true purpose in 2022. Whether you've heard this episode before or are hearing it for the first time today, I thank you for being here. We'll be back next week with a new episode featuring Miss Anita Hill. Until then, here's my conversation with the inimitable band leader of The Roots, the musical director on The Tonight Show, and the filmmaker behind Summer of Soul, Questlove. I hope you enjoy. How, how's it going? Um, just to do a quick sound test. What did you have for breakfast? One, two, three, four. Oh, I'm sorry. Most people just tell me. To... <laughs> a, B, C, D, E, F, G. I haven't, I haven't had my breakfast yet. H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. Nice to meet you, by the way. Nice to meet you. How do you feel? I feel great. I wake up every day uh, with gratitude, which is something new for me. But, you know, life is different post-pandemic. Like, I, I swear, the many changes that this film has brought to me, just from a human standpoint, all the things that I used to eye roll and scoff at and laugh at behind people's backs, I totally turned into that person. I used to always look at Diddy like, oh, really? You start every day on your knees thanking God for another day? Really? Like you get up from your <laughs> your escapades from the night before and you just thank God for everything, you know? And I feel like that's the, the main difference of my life now and then. Like before my feet touch the ground, I make myself, you know, recite 20 things that I'm grateful for, even if it's just the cats not waking me up to feed them at four in the morning. You got to start your day off with 20 great affirmations before you even check your email and get into the world. I assume you're also grateful for this movie that has happened. Yes. In the process of making this movie, you have recovered this remarkable historical footage from the Harlem Cultural Festival of 1969. It's a movie born out of this passage, I think, from your book, Music is History. In that you write, I have thought often about how history happens twice, once when an event actually occurs and once when people discover that it has occurred. Right. That second time is the first time for them because they didn't know about it the first time. Exactly. Going into Summer of Soul, I think it's safe to say most viewers were discovering this event for the first time. But for you, I have two questions. What was your entry point into this story? And did this framework from your book, That History Happens Twice, did it help clarify your purpose for making this movie? This is one of the rare examples where history might happen three times. The first time I laid eyes on this project, uh, I was far away. I was in Tokyo, Japan, 1997. My translator had taken me to a restaurant called the Soul Train Cafe, which is basically uh, an olive garden with a bunch of TV monitors on the screens showing uh, old concert footage of Motown X, you know, the Temptations and Smokey Robinson and whatnot. Near my table, there was a monitor that showed Sly and the Family Stone performing in front of a large audience. It was camera two, like the bird's eye camera. So I couldn't see their faces. I didn't even realize those were black people they were performing in front of. Having saw the word festival behind them, I assumed that, okay, this must be Montreux Jazz Festival, or this could be the Nice Jazz Festival, Glastonbury. Like I thought it was European because as far as I knew, festivals were not an American thing. There was Woodstock, there was Altamont. You know, after Ultimate, then no more festivals. There's Live Aid, Farm Aid, and all we had now was Lollapalooza. So in 1997, I don't know what I'm watching. I'm just seeing Sly and the Family Stone perform from like a camera that's far away. So cut to 20 years later in 2017, backstage at The Tonight Show, where these two gentlemen, David Dinnerstein, Robert Fivalent, are trying to convince me 
that 300,000 Harlemites gathered over the summer of 1969 to watch Sly and Stevie, Mavis Staples and the Staples Singers and B.B. King and all these acts. You know, I'm taking my iPhone and running to the next dressing room and Googling, and I don't see anything. And I'm asking my assistant, I'm like, yo, this is nothing here. What are they talking about? And I'm like, excuse, wait, guys, can you wait one second? I'm running over, I'm calling up people. Yo, you, you were in New York at the time. You know, yo, you ever heard of uh, this black Woodstock thing? Right, exactly. I would have almost put the farm on the fact that I was either being pranked or lied to because there's certain people that I meet that know my reputation for collecting pop culture artifacts. And there's always that one guy that wants to let me know that he has a particular Jackson's concert from like 1980 in Oakland that I don't got, or I bet you don't got this print stems of let's go crazy demo. There's always that person that's trying to outdo me. And so I naturally thought that these guys were trying to one-up me. Like, we know you're the king of pop culture, but we bet you don't got this. You know, I'm kind of dismissive and I walk away from it like, okay, well, we'll do lunch and I'll see you. And they come back the next week with a hard drive and 40 hours of footage on it. And then all that confidence and swagger I had just totally went out the window. I realized like, oh God, this really happened. Even as I'm watching it, I'm looking for excuses like, well, there's obviously a good reason why this never came out. Like maybe the sound sucks or maybe the tape quality is bad or, and there was nothing wrong with it. The whole time I was just like, wait, one, why me? Two, why didn't this come out? And three, why me? That's my introduction to the project. Then once it comes out, it's almost like I rediscovered it again. So that's why I say it almost, history almost happens three times for me or four times. This happened when this happened two years before I was born. This came into my life in 1997, unbeknownst to me. In 2017, I tried to deny it even existed. And now this has absolutely changed my life as a human being. There's a point in Prince's autobiography where he says that seeing Woodstock at 11 changed his life and he knew that's what he wanted to do. This film, in watching Tony Lawrence step out on faith and attempt to heal the Harlem community with music and art, spoke a lot to me even as I was editing it. So, yeah, I'm not even the same from that standpoint. Like, I now realize that I have to conquer all fears and never have doubt in any creative project I get into. Tony Lawrence goes on stage and introduces these acts, and, and these acts include Nina Simone, Stevie Wonder, Fifth Dimension, Sly and the Family Stone, Gladys Knight, all of whom have agreed to come to Mount Morris Park in Harlem. And you have these remarkable performances that you've assembled on the soundtrack of the film, which I know just came out. On the liner notes of that soundtrack, you wrote, what you're hearing here is a certain specific quality the sound of warmth. And the sound of warmth is the sound of human beings making music. And the sound of humanity isn't something you should take lightly. What does that warmth mean and sound like to you? Well, for starters, let me say that when Hal Tolshin, the director of the Harlem Cultural Festival, the guy that's directing uh, the cameras, well, he he signs over the, the rights to the, to the footage to us. When he passes away, maybe like a day or two later, his wife reaches out to us. She just says, you know, just happenstance, like, by the way, guys, there's stuff in my basement. I don't know if it might mean anything to you, but, you know, we're about to move. And, you know, maybe you guys want to take a look at see if this stuff is at any interest to you or not. I don't know. And, man, we look at this footage and it's like we see this these boxes and these boxes answer everything. And the first thing that catches my eye is that the soundboard only has 15 microphones. Now, I'm a very technical person when it comes to engineering and all those things. So I'm looking for like outboard gear. Was there such a thing as outboard gear and, and, you know, like things that we use now to make our performances happen? And the first thing I did was I called my engineer for the roots. And I'm just like, yo, just out of curiosity, I'm looking, at, there's only 15 channels here. How many channels do the Roots use in concert? He said, well, back in the day, like you guys were like maybe 46 channels. He's like, now average Roots shows, it's like 103. I said, what? I said, how? And I showed him footage. I was like, explain to me how do 15 microphones, three of which aren't even used only on one song. Stevie Wonder, his drummer uses three microphones. Stevie's drum set is three microphones, but that's just one song. Stevie's keyboard gets one microphone. Stevie's guitar and bass player get one microphone to share with each other. 
Stevie's vocal at the keyboards, one microphone. Stevie's vocals when he's standing up, one microphone. Stevie's horn section shared the remaining six microphones, I think. And I'm like, how is this sounding so pristine and better than anything in life? And yet, you know, we're using 103 channels and we're not even reaching half of this warmth. And there's a lot of lessons that I learned about we use like technology is awesome. And the thing is, is that evolution and change are important aspects of this film. You know, 69 is the year where fashion change, where hairstyles change, what we called ourselves. Like we started calling ourselves black in 1969. So politically we're changing, culturally, everything is changing. So it's not like I'm saying like I'm anti-technology, but I think there's also a point where in our search for perfection, you can squeeze the life out of something. So when I'm watching these tapes, especially if you look at B.B. King's Why I Sing the Blues, there's a point of magic where like in the last minute, there's like a breathless race to the finish. But I noticed something about the musicianship on that particular performance. Oftentimes, musicians feel like they have to play loud in order to make an impact. You don't have to hit the drums that loud to make an impact. And as a result, because all the musicians are playing very soft, it's a different sound quality when it goes to the microphones where you don't have to EQ as much. And as a result, when we finally did the final mix for the movie, we truthfully only, like we used the, the rough mixes from that performance. And it's not like the sound guy knew, okay, one day in the future, 50 years from now, this is going to be a movie. So let me make sure this is pristine quality. No, it was just like he turned up the microphone levels and then just made a reference mix. But that reference mix is more perfect sounding than any EQing or effects we could have put on it. And we try to mix this thing. And it was like, something's not quite right. I think I like the rough mix better. And that's what we wound up using. Like, it's just the sound of warmth. It's an indescribable natural sound that we take for granted now. But it explains a lot. It explains why rappers tend to sample from things in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. There's a warmth there that we can't quite describe that's been taken away. We can create faster on our computers, but there's nothing that's going to replace the sound of analog warmth. Well, instead of trying to describe it, why don't we take a listen to that warmth you're talking about? This is a clip from Summer of Soul from the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to bring up some folks. Gladys Knight and the Pips. I bet you're wondering how I do. From your book, you have this line I, I really like. You write, it is true that how you come to history has everything to do with how history comes to you. And I think to understand how you came to the history in this film, we have to understand how musical history came to you growing up in West Philadelphia. You're born in 1971 to Lee Andrews and Jacqueline Thompson, both of whom were singers. But your first musical memory, I think. It's a tragedy. <laughs> comes at the age of two or three. Yeah. When your sister washes soap into your eyes. Yeah. It's weird. Music to me is a Polaroid. This often explains why hopefully no one will ever have this experience. But if you ever have the unfortunate situation of, of getting pulled over, you turn the volume down. Uh, Chappelle jokes that, you know, no one wants to get their ass beat to a soundtrack. But... <laughs> I find it weird that a lot of the um, traumatic memories of my life are the memories that have stuck with me. Why do you find that weird? Well, it's further accentuated by the fact that there is always something playing in the background that sets it off. And so the first two memories in life that I have are also two tragic memories. One is 
getting my Afro washed. And, you know, I guess at the time I was two years old, I didn't realize that you have to close your eyes when the soap hits your face or else it's going to sting. The soap gets in my eyes and it stings. And my only memory is my family pinning my shoulders to the floor like a wrestler so that I can flush my eye out. And again, I can't speak words or whatever, but I definitely remember laying on the floor and they're pouring water into my eyes and I'm like crying. And all I remember was Sly and the Family Stones, just like a baby playing in the background, which is like one of the many sad, depressing songs on There's a Riot going on. And so even to this day, I just think of soap stinging, crying, my dad, my sister pinning my shoulders to the ground, my mom pouring water into my face. And the second one, of course, when I'm in Pasadena, California, my first memory of Soul Train also tied into my first memory of Curtis Mayfield. I'm taking a bath and I run out of the bathtub. It's always in a bath. Yeah, I'm clean. (laughs) (laughs) I'm running in the, the living room of my grandmother's house and I slip and my leg lands on like those old school radiators. And I guess I had second degree burns. I had a mark on my leg, probably up into the age of 16. But at the exact moment when that burn happens is when Curtis Mayfield's song modulates to another key. And for some reason, even to this day, when a song modulates, like if you listen to uh, the end of Stevie Wonder's uh, Golden Lady, how it keeps going up higher and higher and higher in the key. When I hear a modulation, that's almost like a foreshadowing or like omen in a movie, like dun, 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 don't don't go in that closet. I mean, it could be like my favorite things by Julie Andrews or whatever. When a song changes a key, it instantly triggers a fear that I can't escape to this day. I know it's weird to say, but yeah, that's kind of how music is our Polaroids. They're photos of your past and your memories are what shape you. There is something about Golden Lady that makes me want to switch it before that happens every time. I, I and I and I have never I don't have the trauma attached to that that you're talking about, but I it get, I get nervous and I don't know why. You know what's weird? I actually want some unknowingly repurposed it and rechanneled it into a comic memory. We were having a jam session once in Philly and Music Soul Child was playing with us. And so we're playing the song and he's singing it and we get to the end and then we switch the key. We go a little higher, half a step up. He's with it. We go half a step up. He's with it. He's half a step up. He's with it. Now I'm looking at my keyboard player like, wait, do we end it here? Do we go up another key? All right, we'll go up another key. He goes up a key, we half a step up. And then music sort of looking at us like, okay, like we get into the song right here because I can't sing this high. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you're good. And I look at James like, you want to go another half step up? Okay, let's go. We go half step up and music's looking at, yo, we're in front of a, a, an audience. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so he instantly programs himself. And then we did it again. And he's looking at us like, stop modulating. Like, we're good, we're good. I said, all right, you're good, you're good. And I was like, one more time, Jason. And then he just looks at it and throws the mic on stage. Like he realizes that we're laughing at him. So, you know, somehow I, I, I rechanneled it as a comic moment now. So I tend to now think of Music Soul Child struggling to hit those high notes as we keep raising the key up. Now, you're talking about a live performance that comes many years later after your childhood. And although you grew up in West Philadelphia, you end up spending a lot of time on the road as a kid part of your father's band, Lee Andrews and the Hearts. At age seven, you steamed and ironed the costumes. At age nine, you operated the spotlights. At 12, you were actually in the band. When you look back at some of those live musical experiences, but really that Polaroid as a whole, what do you make of those sort of unusual childhood memories? Well, the first thing I say is, man, my dad really got off good on cheap labor. Um, Like, wait, 10-speed bicycles all I have to pay in order to uh, <laughs> get a band leader and a musical director? You should have unionized. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know. You know, it's weird. It's, it's so funny because I just talked to my mom about this maybe a week and a half ago. Like, during Christmas week, we were looking at old photos. I got into the conversation on what made her decide to send me to performing arts school in the first grade. She's like, man, you know and I know you wouldn't have been able to survive in a normal public school. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And she brought up the story to me about, it was one time when we came home, I was explaining to my friends on the block, I think I was trying to tell them the difference between what the meals are like when you sit in first class 
versus when you sit and coach. Now, this is 1979. You're eight years old. Yeah. And they're like, the hell are you talking about? I was like, well, you know, they, they have like water sandwiches and da 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 so My mom caught the moment. She intuitively like told me to come in the house, like try to stop the uh, mirrors having a snob movement right now. Well, I didn't know. I just literally thought every kid has that experience where they sit and watch their parents perform in a Miami nightclub and... They know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about cutting light gels. And they know what I'm talking about when I say ringing out the monitors. Like I realized I didn't have like normal childhood experiences. I didn't know this at the time. So, you know, for me, I think just that period between seven and really 16, I swore this was just a normal everyday existence for everyone in life. And then as I became a teenager, I realized like, how unusual and how charmed my life was. I tell the story of when I'm assigned homework at Performing Arts. My very first homework assignment was bring in your favorite record, your favorite 45. I brought in Frankie Lyman's and the Teenagers, Why Do Fools Fall in Love? I think my teacher found that hilarious. Sort of like if uh, kids of the roots now will tell me how much they love Michael Jackson. Like, I'll be shocked. You know what? Michael Jack, like, you're not talking about, like, uh, Corday or Lil Nas X or someone of today. They found it humorous that I liked their music. And they explained to me, like, well, this is music from our childhood. Like, what do you know about this? Again, I just thought it was normal because my parents, I'm not even saying they shielded me. It's just that they didn't tell me any better. They didn't tell me that I should be listening to Staying Alive by the Bee Gees or Shadow Dancing by Andy Gibb, something contemporary or something new. It sounds like they listened to the advice their pediatrician gave them when you were born. Yes. My birth doctor was also studying child psychology. Shout out to Dr. Gordon Hodes. I mean, he was a forward thinking kind of hippie doctor. And Gordon was a fan of my dad's work. And I think he was more or less asking from an epigenetic standpoint. He wanted to know if the genes, the talent inside my dad could be somehow transferred to me via epigenetics and would often ask during weekly visits, like, okay, so does he have a sense of rhythm? Do you hear him like singing? All those things. And he really encouraged my mom to let me go as far as, as I can go with creativity. Like you might think he's making mud pies out of his food, but that's him being creative. You might think, oh, you're damaging my furniture, but that's him being creative. It's important to let him like at least up until the age of eight, when of course, like a, a knife or a fork inside the socket is dangerous, but let him find his creativity. And so they basically just let me abuse all the furniture until they decided, okay, we got to get you a drum set or something to, this is what you hit on. You don't no longer have to hit these lampshades and lampshades were my symbols. And of course the light bulbs would go out every time. So Dr. Gordon uh, heavily encouraged me to find my creativity. Once you do embrace that creativity you're talking about and begin to make your own music, you form a band called The Roots. In time, the group lands at Gavin Records, but on the night of your record signing party, it all comes to a head between you and your family. What happens on December 5th, 1993? It's really weird. So the night before, my mom tells me, I think like on December 3rd or December 4th, you know, we were a showbiz family. There's a lot of masking that happens. Like now we're a rare black family that was very much into mental health and therapy. And we knew what a dysfunctional family was like conversations that black people are just starting to have now in 2020. We were having these conversations like in 90, 91, 92. And so my mom, she told me first that she is making the decision to leave my dad and divorce him. For me, it was painful because I was the one kid on the block that had both mom and dad at parent-teacher night. And my parents were beautiful, fashionable people. Like, I was the coolest kid because, like, we were the beautiful family and we were showbiz family. Suddenly, like, people are going to see that, ah, we're broken inside just like you are. And so my way of coping or dealing with that also happens to happen the night we have our record celebration party. So when you're listening to our second album, Do You Want More?, when you're listening to uh, a Say What Man, that's pretty much that's all that's on my mind. My family, my life, everything that I knew is falling apart at this very moment. Otherwise, be a, a celebratory night for us, us getting a record deal. Local boys made good. So what I remember of all of December was that I didn't want to go home. 
I didn't want to face the darkness. She was going down. It was just me and my dad. I didn't want to face anything that had to do with my family falling apart. So pretty much I just stayed at the studio. Like I made excuses to stay at the studio. Everyone else would go home like 6 p.m. Like we get there at 12, work a little bit, do some lunch, do some dinner, go home at eight o'clock. And from like eight o'clock till maybe four in the morning, maybe me and the assistant engineer, I just figured out like, okay, well, what does this mic do? What does this compression do? And what if I recorded this way and that way? So I'll say that a lot of the education that I got in engineering and producing and figuring out how to make the studio work comes from that time period. Of not wanting to go home. Of not wanting to go home. And when the engineer's worn out, I'd sleep on the couch. Maybe I'd go home in the morning when my dad's left and shower, change clothes and come back. But I realized a lot of the artists that we love, their accessibility, their access to a studio, that's the difference between those records that we like and those records that we don't like. Most of the time, you work on the songs at home, and then we go to the studio, and we're looking at the clock, and you got five hours. It's almost like, uh, you know, before, um, up into uh, 2015, when we were working on Hamilton, the process of doing a Broadway record, and I was wondering, like, why do Broadway records sound so lifeless? It's because they're thinking of, there's a person there, like, with the clock in their hands. There's a union person that really just soaks the joy out the room. And he's like, okay, guys, we have three hours and 22 minutes left. You know, you can't be creative when someone is there micromanaging you over your shoulder. So before Hamilton, you got the entire cast in the room and you did the entire play in front of a microphone, top to finish. And the whole point is to get out before clock strikes zero because of overages and whatever you put on tape, that's what you got. And the difference in Hamilton is that it was recorded like a real album, like we're going to work on this song first and this song next and this song that, And you hear the difference and thus the world opens. So it's like if you're studying the studio, if you're studying everything about how to get the best sound out of that studio, it makes you a better creative. So that's what I did in the sort of the tail end of 1993. And that sort of set me on the path I'm on now. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisions History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point. The market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, 
and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. A lot happens after that night after you break the news to your father, both in music history but also in the history of the roots. The death of Kurt Cobain in April of 1994 prompts a call from your manager, Rich Nichols, to get your second record finished in less than a week. You and the group rush to make that album, Do You Want More? Then you flee to London, where you have your Hendrix living in Europe moment, or the Beatles playing in Hamburg. You refine your songwriting, the instrumentation. From that, Illidelph Half-Life is born and then released in 96. But I want to go to the late 90s here, when you go to your label, Geffen Records, and make a proposal that most bands probably wouldn't make. Yes. As you said, we creatively and technically exiled to Europe. It was important for us to go to Europe because there really just wasn't a space for a band to exist in the United States. And oftentimes, maybe our agent will hold back that we're a rap group. Like, oh, you know, they're jazzy. They do poetry. Oh, yeah. Have the guys come down. And often it's the case of like, I don't like rap music, but I like you guys. That happened a lot. But there really wasn't an outlet that was as open to our music as you could say the grunge movement or for rock music. So we moved to the UK in 1994. The two things that we learned in that whole experience was the power of jam sessions and the power of festivals. And so everywhere there was a jam session, we couldn't believe it. Like, yo, musicians still get together and play. That was never happening. I had to go to performing arts to meet my musician friends. I had to go to settlement music school. It wasn't like if I were born in the 50s, then yes, everyone on the block was a musician. We all gathered in the living room or in a basement. We jammed, but that wasn't happening anymore. So we learned the jam session and we learned the festival. 600 festivals in the UK. By that point in the United States, you could count festivals on one hand. As a result, we were determined, one, to bring back the jam session with us when we came back to the States finally in 98, 99, and also the festival, which, you know, we wound up doing the Roots Picnic around like 2007, so maybe like 10 years from then. So in the case of jam sessions, we told our label, in order for us to really hit pay dirt in a way that's satisfactory to you and justifies all these millions that you're spending, you're going to have to invest in the story. Part of the story is gathering a flock. We were a one-man island. You know, we weren't hanging with Wu-Tang Clan. We weren't friends with our idols. Like, we weren't chilling with De La Soul in a tribe called Quest. Like, you know, occasionally we see Gangstar over in Europe because their management was from the UK. So they explained to them, like, there's the world. Most rap artists, they just, they release the record. They tour the States because it's fun. They might do one or two weeks in outside of the States. And then next thing you know, it's over. Whereas we were doing like 200 dates a year across the world. So coming home, we decided, okay, the first thing we have to do is get a chef because nothing says jam session. I'll be there quicker than free food. So we got the best chef in Philadelphia. Shout out to Chef Terry. And then when the world found out like, wait, Terry's cooking at Questlove's house? What? I'm there. So the music was really just an afterthought. Oh, music was absolutely like we didn't even, you know, it just happened to be like, yeah, come to Mir's house and Chef Terry's cooking. And oh, look at here. Here's some instruments, you know. <laughs> but as a result, this is where unknown Jill Scott 
comes every week. This is where Kendrick, the family soul, music soul child. The jam sessions got so out of hand that at one point I was just like, yo, man, why is the pizza guy on the microphone? Like, this is now a free fall. Like, Bilal was a teenager in high school from my old high school. And he's like a free jazz singer. And I'm like, you know, he screams a lot. And then when it really got out of hand, it's like the next door neighbor or friends of mine saying like, yo, I know this 10 year old, she sings like an adult. And I'm like, dude, you can't have a 10 year old here at 11 o'clock at night at these jam sessions. But sure enough, Jasmine Sullivan as a 10 year old is at these jam sessions. And then, you know, yo, my homegirl from Atlanta, she wanted to come up. Her name is Ndire. She plays guitar just week after week after week. So suddenly it's Eve, Beanie Siegel, Freeway, Jill Scott, Music Soul Child, Flowetry. They started hearing about, oh, there's magic in Philly. We need to come here and come to these jam sessions. So they're coming from the UK because they heard that something's happening in Philly. They came over. And then Les Nubians from France, same thing. Suddenly we built a story. I'll say at least 14 to 15 record deals came out of that situation in the first draft. And then the second draft, I won't hesitate to say that literally any Black artist, we're beyond that now. Any artist that you see performing right now, I guarantee you it's a one degree separation that that entire band is being led by one of the original 17 musicians that made up of those those jam sessions from Black, we called it the Black Lily Jam Sessions back in 2000, like back when Adam Blackstone was probably 15 back then. Like right now, you're not doing anything on a stage with any band member unless you have a conversation with Adam Blackstone. Like if you're Ed Sheeran, Adam Blackstone's your guy. If you're Saweetie, like literally Adam Blackstone is probably the musical director of at least 60 to 70% of all music output. Like he doesn't have to physically be there. He's now to the point where he's now just creating musical directors of other musicians from Philadelphia. So yeah, that one little pebble of a theory of let's have jam sessions and let's get good music out of it. And as a result, Things Fall Apart came from that moment. And really the Neo Soul sort of epicenter, that story starts during that time period. These jam sessions place the roots in this larger artistic community. But I also know for a long time you felt the plight of the group was like the story of the tortoise and the hare. <laughs> In your book, you write, there we were, shell shuffling along, releasing our records and playing our shows, building our audience and registering with critics as all these rabbits rushed by us. I figured that we'd keep trundling and that eventually we'd see all those rabbits sleeping by the side of the road as we passed them by. Eventually you realized you had the wrong metaphor. When did that epiphany happen? It's kind of happening now because here's the deal. It's 1992. I'm busking on South Street with Tariq and we're busking five hours at a time and we're having jam sessions. I mean, we're, we're freestyling on the corner of, of South Street. And in 1992, I'm thinking, yeah, it would be cool to make a 12-inch rap single or whatever, but you know, I really don't know what's ahead for us. But I do know at that point, the average rap span of, of a rap career was like maybe five to six years. So I'm thinking in 1992, like whew, 1999 is a long way from now. Like we'll be flying in space by then and this will probably be over because, you know, this only lasts for five years. Always in my mind, I never had the wherewithal or the the elastic thoughts to think, will I still be here at 50? And it's so weird that just now, like July 2nd of 2021 is literally when the idea of what I truly thought success was really started to unfurl. You know what I mean? It's weird that, yes, it was happening the whole time. And all those moments, like winning the Grammy and making voodoo with D'Angelo and doing the phrenology record and playing these big stadiums and selling out Radio City Music Hall and then being on the number one late night television show and all like all these things are happening. But, you know, I never got outside of myself to see if we made it. It's not like we did it in a, in a splashy way. I'm actually very grateful. Like if you were to ask me now, if there's one act that was sort of like neck and neck with competition back then, like if you're looking in terms of who I felt competition was, the Roots and the Fugees. So let's go to 1997. Let's go to 1998. And if you were to ask me, now the score just sold 12 million units worldwide. They sold a 
grip of Grammys. They are the darlings of hip hop live bands and whatever. Like if you were to ask me, would you rather have four and a half mics in the source or would you have like your critical claim for Illadelph Half-Life or would you rather have the Fuji's, you know, 12 million selling, like selling out? I would have probably chose the latter. I would probably chose that. But knowing what I know now, as slow as it happened, and there's really not a precedent for someone to start trending at the age of 50. Like if someone were to come up to me back in 1992 as a 21-year-old and say, look, this is going to be a very interesting journey. You're going to make a lot of history. You're going to have some success. But your idea of like, wow, my dreams really came true. You won't even feel that for half an inkling of a moment until you're probably 50. And I'm telling that person, that Jacob Marley figure, like that ghost figure, like, wait, I'm 21 now. You're trying to tell me that I'm still going to be a thing at 50? And at that, like 50 is when I'm really going to start coming into my powers. And I would have never believed you. But Quest, doesn't it seem like your manager, Rich Nichols, who passed away in 2014, it's almost like he had the roadmap for you before you did. I'm going to literally tell you, here's something weird. So yeah, Richard Nichols, he uh, had a bout with leukemia, which I'll say, first of all, to know Richard Nichols is to know the mental level intelligence that he had. Like his IQ was way beyond like, I think it was like 179 or something. Like he was a genius. Like again, I'm here. On paper, there's really should not be a logical reason why I'm still here. But the faith that he had and the confidence that he had to execute that is evidence of it. So the last year of Rich's life, He's not able to talk and communicate, but his brain is still sharp and he's able to type. So he's spending the majority of his time in the hospital with leukemia, pretty much waiting for the Grim Reaper to come and get him. So he used every last second to plan me and Tariq's life. Like he used the last four months of his life, literally typing out a 25-year manifesto. His last words in that manifesto are, all right, Amir, if you're broke by 70, then this is not my fault. Like, I'm giving you all the tools you need. So all that you see me doing now is literally me following, think of Biff from Back to the Future 2, like having the almanac. That's exactly what it, like, there's a manifestation paper, and this is what you're going to do when I'm gone and dead. But my last conversation with him, the Roots just played Radio City Music Hall with Nas. And, you know, he could talk a little bit, he was asking like how the show went and I remarked to him that, yo, you'll never guess Nas has a band now. And we were kind of chuckling at it because again, in the early stages of the Roots, like the Roots really weren't allowed to play reindeer games. We were the odd guy, the odd ball out. Like, oh, you guys are a band. You're not really hip hop. There was like a, a dismissive few. I mean, nah, I can't blame them. It just wasn't our time yet. And so one of those people was kind of Nas, like didn't sort of look at us like as like, oh, this guy's good. So we did a show with Nas previously before, and Nas was mind blown at how good we were. And we were shocked at how mind blown Nas was. And it finally hit me. It's, it's like 2006. It hit me then like, ah, uh, this is Nas's first time really seeing the roots. Like, even though we've been out for 14 years, he never bothered to see if we were actually good or not. He just looked at us, dismissed us and never. That's the story with everyone in this thing. And now Nas has a band. We were sort of chuckling at it like, oh, people finally see our side of the fence. And my manager says something. I don't know how we got in this conversation, but he said, we were talking about like the winner circle and the loser circle. And he's like, well, the thing is, is that I never designed you guys to be in the winner circle. Everybody in rap music wants that moment, that ticker tape parade, what we call the Bentley moment, that slow motion, make it rain in the club, the celebratory hype Williams video effect, like every rapper dreams of that moment. And we never had that moment. And he says, I never designed you guys to have a winner circle moment. He's like, however, I'm going to make sure that you guys are the last to lose. So you might not win by your definition of winning, but I'll be damned if you guys aren't the last men standing. And that was like our last conversation with each other. But I wanted to, to quickly note how important dreaming is. There's a clip of Michael Jackson on Soul Train where Don Cornelius asked him, like, what do you do in your spare time? And he says, you know, just sit back and I daydream. Of all the silly adages I've ever heard Michael say, I used to think that was the silliest. Like, did he actually just say on Soul Train he likes to daydream? But now I absolutely grab people by the collar and insist, implore them, please daydream more. That's so important to your development. And only until maybe a year and a half ago, I'm creating defensively. I'm creating like, I don't want 
the RZA and Jay Dilla to think I'm whack. Until Summer Soul came out was the first time that I decided to have desires and to have goals and dreams. And I would like this film to be received well. And I do a lot of things where I do cool stuff and people don't discover it until 15 years later. Like, oh, you worked on Hamilton? I didn't know that. Like those things. This is the first time that I actually had a fantasy or a dream for something and it happened beyond my wildest imagination. So that's kind of the thing where I think dreams are important and we need to dream more. Well, this brings us full circle back to Summer of Soul, which, of course, was born out of dreaming. But it's also a movie that, as you say, recovers the past for the future. And it's the past, and I think your role as a kind of archivist, that reminds me of an interview with Nina Simone in the late 60s. It's one that I know you're fond of, and in it, she says, To me, we are the most beautiful creatures in the world, black people. My job is to make them more curious about where they came from and their own identity and pride in that identity. That's why in my songs, I try to make them as powerful as possible, just to make them curious about themselves because we don't know anything about ourselves. We don't even have the pride and the dignity of African people. We can't even talk about where we came from. We don't know. It's like a lost race. Facts. Actually, real facts. I'm one of the the few human beings of African-American descent. Up until three years ago, I just found out I came from Benin, the West part of Africa. Not many people have the, the luxury of sort of having the celebrity route that leads to discovering who you are. And the moment that I found out I came from Benin, something changes in you, brings something in you. I absolutely believe in that statement, to be curious about yourself and to know your history. And I will say that that statement is... Highly, highly important. The number one idiom my dad used to always say is like, you can't know where you're going unless you know where you came from. You know, a lot of people aren't aware of the fact that we only call ourselves black simply because we don't know if we're Sierra Leone. We don't know if we came from Nairobi. We don't know if we came from Ghana or or if we came from Nigeria. So a lot of us now are just reconnecting to our roots, no pun intended. And that makes a difference. That makes such a difference. For me alone... And discovering that I came from Benin and doing my research in the last two or three years, I used to laugh at people when they talk about like, you should meditate more and da, da, da. I used to think that was like really hippie dippy, like, oh yeah, Sting goes to the uh, the rainforest and sits and meditates and da, da, da. Like I used to just laugh at that stuff and be so dismissive only to realize like that came from my culture, like the Ife religion and all those things that I read about in the history of Benin. It's very important. It just does something in you. It's awesome that she said that. And I hope people receive that. She said, my job is to make them more curious about where they came from, about themselves. I know you're about to turn 51, but in thinking about this film, your book, your DJ sets, the music you make, are you finding a greater kinship in that mission statement, in this role of preserving and restoring the history that people perhaps don't know? The shortest version of that answer is absolutely yes. Weird enough, I had a conversation with Jimmy Fallon via David Letterman when we first started this show. And David gifted Jimmy with something. And it came with a note and said, just know that your entire life experience is going to be on display with this television show that you're doing. Everything that you're doing, everything that you ever experienced in life, you're going to use it for the show, I guarantee you. And at first I was like, well, maybe he's just talking about like comedy, not for music or whatever. And sure enough, I realized Everything inside me gets put on display. To be honest, it's like in the last two years, I've learned just as a human being with this film, maybe I started off thinking, you know what? I'm going to be the funkiest drummer ever. And maybe I expanded a little bit like, okay, I could be a drummer and a producer. And then I expanded further. Well, I could be a drummer, producer, and maybe I could uh, develop plays. It didn't hit me till now. The, The common denominator of all those things is that I'm a storyteller. And that was sort of the selling point of what really made me feel comfortable to direct this movie. Because they all said, well, look, you teach school, you write books, these DJ sets, like everything you do, you tell stories with. So why wouldn't this movie come easy to you? Because you're such, you're a storyteller. And once I thought about it, I was like, okay, maybe that is my thing. But it's so weird. It's like your life, there's BC and there's AD. BC is sort of like you determine what you think your life is going to be. And you try to make that happen. You try to force that will. 
And then 80 is sort of like what the universe tells you what you're going to be. Because I, you know, at 20, I'm not thinking at all that this is going to be my lane at all. Yet the tools are there and it's natural. So I guess at the end of the day, I'm not a drummer. I'm not a food activist. I'm not a producer. I'm not a designer. None of those things. I'm, I'm a storyteller. And I'm just realizing that in the last few years. Well, I'm glad you've made that realization because I, for one, am looking forward to seeing those stories, however they manifest, in the years to come. I appreciate it, Sam. Questlove, thank you for the time. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's our show. Special thanks to Carlene Donovan and Franny Lale at the Oriole Company, Shelby Kimlick at Searchlight, and of course, Questlove. You can listen to the Summer of Soul soundtrack wherever you get your music. If you haven't seen the film, you really should. It's available to stream on Hulu. We'll be sure to link to all of that and more in our show notes at talkeasypod.com. Once you're there, you'll find our back catalog of over 250 episodes with artists and activists like Tessa Thompson, Run the Jewels, Lord, Janelle Monet, Hassan Minhaj, Brittany Howard, Kevin Abstract, Juliette Lewis, and Johnny Mathis. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to send in an email or a voice memo for our upcoming mailbag episode, you can send that to mail at TalkEasyPod.com. That's mail at TalkEasyPod.com. It's also in the description of this episode on your phone. You can leave a comment, reflection, a question, really anything you'd like to share or hear more about. If you want to support Talk Easy by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, or our vinyl record with Fran Lebowitz, you can do so at talkeasypod.com shop. If you want to support the show in other ways, the best thing you can do, it's very simple. Share the show with a friend, a family member, maybe someone you haven't talked to in a while. It doesn't matter. Really, anyone. Sharing the show with someone is still the best way for new listeners to find Talk Easy. If you want to get really ambitious, you can leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. All of that helps. I thank you in advance for your support. As always, Talk Easy would not be possible without our incredible team. The show is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, Shiloh Fagan, Nikki Spina, and Callie Syringus. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Jacob Weisberg, and Malcolm Gladwell. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with Anita Hill. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators 
whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you, and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry, and me, I'll be there too. Enter now at T-Mobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism, fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.